At the beginning of the book of the Revelation of John, the author writes these words of praise. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, we're on our final lesson for this week, and we've uh, seen the kingdom in the Old Testament, in the ultimate uh, failure of human kingdoms. But what does it look like after the kingdoms fail? What hope could there be when it seems like so much time and effort had gone into building this kingdom, even a kingdom of God's people, and even that turned out to be good for only a few short years out of its entire history? This might feel like your favorite sports team that seems to spend its entire existence full of potential, but never winning a championship. And if we start with the premise that God does not make mistakes, then we're forced to change our perspective about what the goal is, at least in the present time. This change of perspective was already happening in the Old Testament. Even during the time of kings in Israel and Judah, the prophets pointed people beyond their limited views of what God's kingdom ought to look like. Assyria had been the nation that took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. It was from Egypt that God's people had first fled from slavery, and Assyria and Egypt were enemies. Yet listen to these words from Isaiah 19. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. And then God says, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. We can see that those who wanted Jesus to come in and crush the Romans had been reading the prophets pretty selectively. Their theology was much more informed by their frustrations about power than what God had said in Scripture. They were not much different from those people who had first come to the prophet Samuel to demand a king like all the other nations who would fight their battles. They wanted a kingdom that was powerful not peaceful. Ironically, Jesus exhibited greater power than they could have ever known. That's evident in every single miracle. Although a day would indeed come when God puts an end to rebellion, before that day, the point was not to conquer everyone, but to draw everyone in. It might be helpful to think of the kingdom in the New Testament after Jesus' earthly ministry in two ways. One, a present inheritance of a kingdom of power. And two, a future inheritance of a kingdom of peace. The same kingdom is already here and not yet here. And whatever we see today is only a taste of what to come, of what is to come. But it's the real thing. It isn't merely a bland appetizer that comes before the main course. It's a bite of the main course itself, something that makes us anticipate what's coming. Let's look at a passage at the beginning of Acts in chapter 1. After the disciples saw Jesus rise from the dead, we might think that they understood then that the kingdom was much different from what they had previously thought. But before Jesus ascends to heaven, they still ask him this question. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, surely now that he's risen from the dead, he'll do what we expect him to do. Now it's time for Jesus to exert his power. But Jesus says to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
The disciples ask Jesus a question, and he answers, no, and yes. No, I'm not going to do what you think I will, at least not right now. But yes, everything that I do from now on will be an exhibition of my power. Starting now, I am sending you out with my power through all the earth. Now, this must have been incredibly confusing. You aren't going to restore the kingdom to Israel, but you are going to send us out in your power to the ends of the earth. Perhaps they didn't understand uh, quite what this meant, but soon they would. Not long after this, in Acts chapter 2, they're praying together, and God sends the Holy Spirit upon them. And immediately, Peter begins to preach to all the people who had come to Jerusalem for the Jewish day of Pentecost. And in his sermon, he quotes Psalm 16, written by King David. That is, written by the best king ever, as far as anyone was concerned. And then in that psalm, David says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Then Peter continues in Acts, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Essentially, Peter says to them, the best king ever that we all love died just like the rest of them did. But he was looking forward to a better king, and that king is Jesus. And after explaining to them what Jesus, that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead, it says in verse 36, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What a difference in his understanding of the kingdom had taken place in Peter. At one time, prior to Jesus' death, Peter is ready to fight with a sword on behalf of the kingdom. And now Peter's bringing people into the kingdom by telling them that if they repent and are baptized, they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. With the sword, it's unlikely that Peter would have gotten very far or done much of anything at all to expand the kingdom of God. And yet with one sermon here, it says that 3,000 souls were added. Now, if I can relate this back to our present time, we need to keep this in mind. Sometimes people think, if my side just had the power, everything would be right around us. If my candidate or my party or my uh, ideology could just get control, then people will see how great it is. If my preferred system could just be shown to work for a little while, everyone would come over to my side. And if they don't, that's okay. At least the right people will be in power so that the opposing side can be defeated. And if it's not stated explicitly, then the sentiment certainly underlies so much of what happens today. We'd like to stake our claim to this land and drive out the enemy. This country would be so much better off if those other people who are ruining it would just go away. And all too often, it's the followers of Christ who are the loudest proponents of this kind of kingdom building. If we can just drive out those others by getting them to abide by our rules, then we can once again claim this land for Christ. But what we have to realize is that Jesus' power is not in the hands of our politicians. It's in the hands of his people. God's power is exhibited as his people work to spread his gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sin through faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is a present reality. It exists today. When we think the kingdom of God is shrinking because of politics, and we focus all of our attention on trying to change society so that it matches our ideals, ironically, we do nothing to contribute to growth of the kingdom of God. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. 
This does not negate citizenship of our current country. Paul remained a Roman citizen and used it to his advantage when necessary. You can see that in Acts chapter 22. But he never placed his hope in his Roman citizenship. Instead, his present citizenship in the kingdom of God made him want to add more people to that kingdom, first of all. And it gave him hope for something in the future uh, beyond what any country on this earth could provide for him. So now let's turn to that future hope. There's a consistent theme from even back in Genesis when God begins to call people to follow him that there is something better down the road. That no matter how good his kingdom might seem in any given place, he has something better for his people and for his world. One way that Christ and New Testament writers talk about the kingdom is to call it an inheritance. In Matthew 25, 31, Jesus says to his disciples, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. If you are Christ's, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. And one of the main questions that has bothered the minds of God's followers throughout human history is when will the kingdom come? Now, as we've seen, God has manifested his kingdom in different ways throughout history, but his people have not always recognized it. That's why these words heirs and inheritance are so important. What is an inheritance? It's something that exists today, but it's passed down to future generations. It is real today, but it also implies something down the road, something that will be received by someone later on. That's why there's not a conflict to speak of God's kingdom as something that has both come today and will come in the future. Every inheritance has an element to it that is both already and not yet. There's no tension between what is and what will be. That's why there is no conflict when Christ spoke of the kingdom having come already being at hand, or being near to his people, and Christ speaking of the kingdom of something that is yet to come. For all the difficulty that Christians have had throughout the centuries in interpreting the book of Revelation, knowing that the kingdom of God is both here today and coming in the future, not only gives a clearer framework for interpretation, but it should give us encouragement as we live day to day. Listen to Leon Morris's words about the churches who would receive the words from John in Revelation. What had become of the message which had induced them to become Christians in the first place? Where was the promise of Christ's coming? All things continued as they were from the foundation of the world. Most of the Christians, as they always have been, were people with no more than average faith. Had they been mistaken in coming to Christ in the first place? Was it all a delusion? Was Christianity a fine religion indeed for the sanctuary, but totally unable to cope with the demands of, of the forum and the capital? must they conclude that it was a pretty delusion, which must inevitably be shattered on the hard rocks of social and political realities. Was real power in the hands of the emperor and his associates? And then Morris continues, to a church perplexed by such problems, Revelation was written. It was sent to a little persecuted, frustrated church, one which did not know what to make of the situation in which it found itself. John writes to meet the need of that church. And what did John have to say to this frustrated church? That God has made his people a kingdom of priests. He says that in chapters 1-6 and, and uh, 
and uh, verse 510. That's today's reality. Since no authority can ultimately triumph over Christ, even though the church may suffer persecution like Christ did, they will reign with him on the earth. That is the future hope. Mortal kings and powers will fail because the immortal Christ will triumph. It's only a matter of time. There's a strong theme, not just in Revelation, but throughout Scripture, of Christ's defeat of all, all the enemies who attack him. There's some very violent imagery used. But this is equally balanced by the idea that all nations will come to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. So Isaiah says in chapter 60, verse 2, Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And describing the heavenly city, John says in Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. This is ultimately what makes those verses we heard from Isaiah earlier so significant. Egypt and Assyria were warring nations for most of their early history. They were in a constant power struggle. But when all things are united under Christ, nations will no longer be at war. National and political divisions will cease because the fullness of the kingdom will have come. We will have received the complete inheritance that is waiting for us, which we have a, just a taste of today. In the coming lessons, we'll be talking about how we, the church, relate to that very inheritance, which is the kingdom of God.